Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Charles Buddy Bolden was a brilliant cornet player, active in New Orleans early in the 20th century. He's considered to be among the earliest musicians who drew from the various styles of New Orleans music, and from them created a revolutionary new form of music that came to be called jazz. Bolden's life ended tragically as he descended deep into mental illness. His story inspired Atlanta jazz saxophonist and composer Jeff Crompton to write the Buddy Bolden opera which we'll hear about later this hour. Opera was the first career for Alexander Smalls, who sang in major U.S. and European opera houses for many years. After retiring from the stage, he became a popular chef and restaurateur. He'll tell us about his new cookbook, Meals, Music, and muses, recipes from my African-American kitchen. First, the new curator of African art at the High Museum is a homegrown talent. Lauren Tate Baeza is an Atlanta native whose previous experience was at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and the Apex Museum. She joins us now via Zoom. Lauren, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me, Lois. Well, congratulations on becoming curator of African art at the High. That's huge. (laughs) Thank you. I was hoping that you could tell us what your role at the High entails. So I think my position will evolve over time to include uh, numerous different tasks, and I'm really excited about collaborating with other departments. But for now, I think uh, most obviously I will be reinterpreting the permanent collection and selections from that collection that are on display in our African art galleries. 
I also look forward to bringing in temporary and traveling exhibitions that engage the continent, and of course, securing acquisitions to build upon our current African art holdings. Lauren, when did you realize you wanted to become an Africanist and focus your work on African studies? Wow, you know, that's kind of a tough question. I had a professor in grad school, and it was an African history professor. And on the first day, he asked everyone in the class, it was a graduate class, so it was small, about five or six people. He asked each of us what made us interested in studying African history. And I was a bit comforted by the fact that everyone struggled to answer that. I think when it comes to things that we're passionate about and we have an affinity for it and we love, sometimes it's hard to answer why. I'm sure there are prompts and life experiences that have happened that make us have certain inclinations, but I don't know that we always know exactly what the moment was where we shifted and had this you know, interest. Most of the time, it's not so dramatic as something like you're personally impacted by someone who lost their life by a disease, and then you become an advocate for research around that disease. Like those kinds of moments are really easy to point to. Like I'm interested in this type of advocacy work because I have this personal story. I think the other stuff, like what kind of food you like or music, it's kind of harder to, to trace. And then maybe it happened so early, we don't remember. But I've always had an affinity for Africa. I always found it to be a really interesting way to engage a vast range of topics. I think an easy, low-hanging thing for me regard to my interest in Africa is my parents. My parents were activists, and their activism wasn't celebrated. It was just the right thing to do. So it's been kind of a development in my adulthood <laughs> that I actually even use that language with reference to my parents. Activists? Yeah, because it wasn't like we are activists. It was just who they were. And they raised myself and my brothers to be sort of global citizens and to look at broad systems of racism, classism, and sexism. This just happened sort of as an extension of how we grew up, right? Just, it was like the books that were around or the things that were discussed at the coffee table. And I think one of the ways that they really wanted us to internalize deeply a global sense of belonging was to instill in us a pan-Africanist worldview. That is to say that it was important to them that we imagine ourselves as greater than a population that had endured great suffering for a few hundred years in the Western Hemisphere. And we celebrated the resiliency of Black Americans and how creative they were under that oppression. But for my parents, it was important that we understood that history before that and we were raised to sort of have a sense that Africa also belonged to us in terms of our identity. That's probably a starting place. <laughs> yeah, I would say heritage and a sense of pride instilled by your parents. And in a, in a, in a numbers thing, I think, too. I mean, there was the language that was used, used numbers. So there was uh, a sense that we were part of a population that was one billion strong as opposed to the 40 million in the United States. The Pan-African aspect of what you talked about makes me think about your work as executive director of the Apex Museum, 
the African-American panoramic experience, APEX is the acronym. The museum is distinct in the way it showcases the African diaspora history and culture year-round. What distinguished the APEX presentation of African history from what you've seen in that of other museums? The Apex Museum was actually very distinctly, I think, African-American. It takes a lot of time telling the story of Auburn Avenue and is sort of a small museum that celebrates African-American success over a short period of history. There is an introduction into Africa and the great civilizations of Western Africa and a bit about the transatlantic trade. There's an installation that is meant to look like a slave ship that's got uh, mannequins were packed in and shackled in the way that people were. But it, it is much more of the story after arriving here and the success of people, despite all of the social and economic disenfranchisement that they've endured and continue to endure. Would you talk about the social media campaign you orchestrated during the summer called hashtag art for equal dignity? Sure. Art for Equal Dignity was born of trying to find something to do during COVID, being a person who organizes exhibitions and no one can come in and see exhibitions anymore. One of the first things that happened when the National Center for Civil and Human Rights closed was that all of my exhibitions slated for the year were canceled. Everyone, I think museum-wide and institution-wide, started to think about how they were going to save money, right? Every institution was thinking about what they could cut and how they could try to stay afloat until things passed and we could reopen. And no one knew when that would happen. And so I started to think about how I could do some storytelling that wasn't in the physical space. The physical space was the thing I couldn't change. And we have these incredible digital tools now. And so I was thinking about creating online exhibitions and a lot of museums have done that really successfully, but I really wanted to engage the community, which has been a part of my practice the whole time. I, when I make an exhibition for the center or another organization, that process always involves partner building and listening to the communities that are going to be represented in the exhibition or who think the topic in the exhibition is particularly valuable and making sure that they're represented in that there's some cultural sensitivity and a sense of ownership over the exhibition that is shared and that it's not just coming from me and my ideas, but that there is a collaboration. And so Art for Equal Dignity ended up being, instead of me just creating an online exhibit, an invitation to the community to create an exhibition with me online. I read that you worked on environmental and community development initiatives in Kenya and Uganda, as well as teaching in Tanzania. How has working with these African countries informed the way you approach your work in the States? I think just what I said, I, I think that I very recently have begun to look at my work in NGOs and my work in museums as two parts of a whole career in community development. When I was working for organizations that do environmental projects in Kenya and Uganda, it was really important to reach out to the community in terms of uh, both community leaders, 
because of the power that they possess and in, in, in getting <laughs> sanctioned by them, but also uh, bottom-up feedback. So having like town hall meetings with everyday people about what they thought was important so that we were balancing the values of the leadership and the values of the everyday people. Before we even broke ground on a project, there was a, a priority placed on understanding what the community thought the problems were versus me coming in with my Western biases about the problems I think I see. And if I were to build upon the problems I think I see, but the community doesn't actually think that's a problem, then it's a waste of resource, it's a waste of donor funds, and it doesn't have the impact that it's intended to have. It won't be used long-term. It's just not a sustainable way to do anything. I approach exhibitions in the same way. Very collaborative, very respectful. The high has more than 1,100 African objects in the collection, dating from ancient times to the present. Lauren, is there a particular time period from the collection that interests you most? There isn't a particular time period that interests me most, but there are particular things in the collection that interest me most, namely in terms of region. One of the things that's always appealed to me about the High's collection is there are some really strong objects, offerings from what is the present day uh, Congos and Nigeria. And I think there's an opportunity to lean into that further and sort of establish the High as a world-class expert for um, art and objects and material culture from those places. So that's sort of what I've been thinking about as I think about building the collection and making the collection stronger over time. I think about how we already have this great head start with offerings from those regions and how there's an opportunity to diversify what we have from those regions rather than diversifying the regions represented. There's 54 countries and two disputed territories and thousands of ethnic groups and I think rather than being a generalist, a little bit from every country sort of institution, um, I think the way forward is to lean into this incredible collection that already got started that is disproportionately representing these two countries and to just make it even more rich. Are there any up and coming African artists on your radar you're particularly excited about working with? There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say anyone in particular, but I will say that one of the reasons I was very excited um, about um, all of the historical offerings from the Democratic Republic of Congo in our collection is because I find contemporary Congo artists to be doing some really incredible work. I think the living artists that are in Kinshasa in particular, but also in Lumbumbashi, are among the most exciting on the continent right now. And so there's an opportunity to create sort of this through line uh, of, this, of the historical objects to the contemporary in some sort of exhibition in the future. So that's how you'll build upon relationships with contemporary artists? Yes. Lauren, what are your hopes for expanding and amplifying the African art galleries at the High? I am at this point still getting familiar with the collection. I'm just a few days in 
but I definitely know that I want to do some different things in terms of how those galleries are thematically oriented. Not that long ago, um, the African art galleries were on the lower level, and now they're in a place uh, on the top floor where they more seamlessly engage with um, American art and self-taught art and contemporary art. And I look forward to continuing that practice of deliberately and intentionally having those departments in dialogue as I become more familiar with the collection and reinterpret the galleries. Lauren Tate Baeza is the new curator of African art for the High Museum. More information on the High's growing African art collection will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Much of America's greatest music originated in New Orleans. Sadly, the creators were not credited with their music during their lifetimes. Composer Scott Joplin died in 1917, but was not widely known until some six decades later. Buddy Bolden, is another New Orleans musician who deserves wide recognition. He's the subject of a new opera by Jeff Crompton. The composer joins us now with Marcus Hopkins Turner, who plays Buddy Bolden in the production. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Jeff, how did you first become interested in Buddy Bolden and his music? Well, a high school band director introduced me to jazz when I was a teenager, and I just got obsessed with the music, and I started reading everything I could. And I read about this guy, Buddy Bolden, who was supposedly the first jazz musician. That just fascinated me, and I thought, how can you say one person was the first jazz musician, but that's what everybody who was there at the time on the ground said. Even the ones who didn't really like his music credited him with coming up with this new style of music. And what distinguished Buddy Bolden's jazz from earlier ragtime and blue? Well, some of this is speculation because, of course, we don't have any recordings of Bolden. But apparently, he put together a bunch of threads that were in the city at the time, ragtime, blues, spirituals, and added the element of improvisation to all that. Marcus, you are classically trained. That comes through in your wonderful singing. 
Did you know about Buddy Bolden before this opera? Not extensively. Being in musical circles, you would hear his name. But before the opera, I hadn't really extensively looked into his music or even researched him as a person. This is a moment of discovery for myself, being a part of this process, not just musically, but historically, it definitely shines some new light on him that I hadn't previously known. Jeff, what made you want to tell Buddy's story in the form of an opera? The idea of writing an opera came first. Um, you know, I've told other people this, that I never wanted to write an opera, but New Year's Day 2018, I woke up and said to myself, oh, I'm going to write an opera this year. <laughs> and the Buddy Bolden story was one of the first things that came into my mind because it's just always fascinated me. Uh, not only the power of his music and his struggle with mental illness always just kind of touched me. It's a sad story. Very operatic, I suppose. It is very tragic, this story. And you have emphasized the fact that there are no recordings. Marcus, in the opera, early on, you as Buddy, tell one of the musicians in the band there's no score. So how do we know what he wrote? Jazz historians have done a pretty good bit of research on it. And again, just through interviews with people who heard him, you know, starting in the, probably the 1940s, uh, historians got interested in finding out as much as we could about him. So we know some of the songs he played. As a matter of fact, his most well-known song is now usually politely called Buddy Bolden's Blues. That particular song is still played among traditional jazz bands. You know, we have reports of other things he played, like the very beginning of the opera, the first lick of the overture is from a song called, If You Don't Shake, You Don't Get No Cake. about your music for this opera. There are moments, particularly from the saxophone trio, which is the orchestra, when we clearly hear a jazz style, improvisational type riffs. The singers are given music that sounds like it could have been in the 1920s style of Arnold Schoenberg or Alban Berg. You use a very contemporary classical style to tell this story through the music. Uh, yes, I don't think of it as a quote-unquote jazz opera at all, although that's, the that's my background. 
So whatever I write is going to have at least one foot in jazz. But it's possibly one of my weaknesses that maybe I don't have a single style. I'm kind of all over the place with my writing. And so it's got one foot in jazz, one foot in contemporary classical music, if you want to call it that. Well, many effective compositions are a blend of all different styles. I'm curious about the orchestra. You are a saxophonist by training. You have a saxophone trio as the orchestra. Buddy Bolden was a cornet player. Did you intentionally exclude cornet from the sound? Well, it wasn't that I was trying to exclude cornet so much. It's just that when I got the idea to write this piece, I knew the Edgewood Saxophone Trio just had to be the orchestra because we've been together for 10 years and I know how to write for those guys. And I know how to make us, I think, sound like more than three musicians. Uh, The only time where it maybe became problematic was when Mr. Bolden did what he called calling his children home, which is there weren't enough people at one of his dances. He'd stick his horn out the window and do a bluesy little call and draw people from the dance across the street or whatever. And so I had to make that work with three saxophones. So it's kind of an abstracted version of a cornet blues call. Well, let's talk about this video production. What were some challenges you faced putting all of this together during the pandemic? Well, just figuring out what to do, because this opera was scheduled to be performed in Atlanta in June. Uh, We were going to have two nights of performances. And obviously, when the pandemic hit, we had to go to plan B, and it took me a while to figure out what plan B was going to be. But I'm really pleased with the way it turned out, mostly due to the performances of the cast. You know, they were just all performed on cell phones from their home. Really? Really. Because it is very effective visually, and all of the voices are gorgeous. Uh, I definitely agree. And when they started sending those videos to me, that's when I realized oh, this is really going to work, because I wasn't sure before that. Marcus, what can you tell us about playing the role of Buddy? Would you tell us more about this poor tortured soul and inhabiting his character? It was a bit of a challenge for me, only because, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a performing artist. I'm a theater guy. I do a lot of musicals and other stage productions. So for me, a lot of what informs me on stage is how other characters react to your character. And so when you're working in this digital space, you don't have that information when you're recording. So you're trying to use as as much context clues from right off the paper, off the script as possible. And there's almost a fear in him. It's hard to read on the surface because of how he acts with his bandmates and then at the end with his mom. But there's a fear in his intensity. So two examples. The first one is when nobody's at the club listening to his music. You know, they're all across the street listening to a rival band. His immediate action is like, it can't be like this. Like, how are they over there 
let's bring them in. And at least in my head, it was this immediate, let's go get them now. Then later in the scene with his mom, right? You know, there's obviously the paranoia that he's suffering from in the moment. You know, there's a fear in him that's, is today enough? Is today it? And then when you have the challenges of being unhealthy in the way that he was, that on top of this energy of having to always keep pace, of always having to get things done now, it's this overwhelming pressure that also helped lead to how he ended up. Jeff, could you give us a summary of the script? It opens with Buddy and his band preparing for a gig, and Alphonse Pacou, the clarinet player, comes in, and this scene actually came from an interview later in life with Alphonse Pacou. It was the first time that he had been thrown into the deep end to play without cheap music in front of him, and he had to learn to improvise on the job. And in that first scene, uh, there's a couple of Buddy Bolden fans who sing his praises, and it's obvious from their reaction that his band is really something special. Marcus sings this aria full of self-doubt, and he seems to realize that he's kind of falling apart mentally and doesn't know what to do about it. I'm your clarinetist. It goes on until Buddy in scene three collapses during a parade, which really happened at a Labor Day parade in 1906. His bandmates take him home for his mom to take care of. Scene four, Alice Bolden played amazingly by Jamie Allalaw. Oh, she is astonishing in that role. I agree. But she basically, her aria is a kind of tortured prayer asking God to help her son. Then Buddy attacks his mother, thinking she's trying to poison him. And sadly, this was the only time in Buddy Bolden's lifetime that he made the newspapers when he hit his mother over the head with a water pitcher. And after that, he was arrested and institutionalized and spent the next 25 years in the Louisiana State Insane Asylum. And the piece ends with Alice singing a letter to his doctor 
asking if her son received the package for Christmas that she had sent. Which we come to realize probably was not the case, given the, the photos were shown of these poor patients in that hospital and from what we know of psychiatric hospitals in general during the early part of the 20th century. Yes, and sadly, New Orleans had, for the time, a kind of enlightened view toward, I guess, what they called the criminally insane. They knew it was cruel just to throw this guy into prison. So they thought they were doing the right thing, sending him to uh, the Jackson State Insane Asylum. But again, mental health treatment was so in its infancy at the time. Jeff, what are your hopes for the viewing, the distribution of this production? We were all disappointed that we did not get to perform this piece live. And I think everyone is committed to doing that when it's safe to do so. But our plan B, the internet presentation, I'm happy about because more people are going to be able to see it now. And again, that's, I just hope everybody who is at all interested in this story, interested in seeing a short, accessible chamber opera, watches this. I just hope as many people as possible see it. Jeff Crompton is the composer and director of the Buddy Bolden Opera. Marcus Hopkins Turner sings the role of Buddy. The opera can be streamed in its entirety on YouTube. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Alexander Smalls is a classically trained musician who became a renowned professional opera singer. He's also a James Beard Award-winning chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. With Thanksgiving just two days away, we thought it would be nice to listen back to Alexander Smalls discussing his new cookbook, Meals, Music, and Muses. Here, he explains why music and food are inextricably linked, especially in African-American culture. Well, you know, it is a cultural expression that permeates the entire spectrum of the African-American life, the landscape of essentially how we live life through the lens of our colorful culture, our rhythmic uh, music, our expression of food from garden to pot to plate. Um, It has always been, especially for me, the two disciplines that have shaped and molded who I am as an adult. Music was there to help me cultivate a sense of belonging and also to create a fanciful life. And food was their ultimate pleasure. But, you know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was a city farmer and had a large garden. And I would work that garden. Now, I had no interest in working my mother's flower plants, <laughs> especially the rose bushes. But I would get my hands in that dirt and plant some seeds and, and uh, t- 
take care of some tomatoes and butter beans, squash and watermelons. I loved it. And then that transition that happened from the garden to the pot, to the plate. And music was the backdrop for all of it. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. You, you write that far beyond food-inspired tunes, such as beans and cornbread, one of my favorite, or pepper pot and grits and groceries. In the African-American cultural canon, food and music served a dual purpose. Would you further elaborate? <laughs> I think I answered both questions at once. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, the subject for me is an endless soundtrack of my life. And this is why the book Males, Music and Muses really was so gifted for me at this time, having written three books, having had a, a, a number of careers. You know, I look back at how the music and the food created every container for all of my experiences in life and continue to. I mean, I, I essentially, I opened my first restaurant to take my kitchen public to essentially feed and serve and nurture the world. So it is an ongoing theme that resonates with me strongly personally, but I feel particularly with the African-American uh, community. I mean, the two were so accessible, you know, because you could make up a tune and clap your hands and, 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 and slap your hip and hum your way to glory if you needed to. <laughs> and if you had something good to eat on that, on that journey, it made it even better. <laughs> oh, I have to say, your laugh is, is such a wonderful reflection of that joy and definitely the laugh of a trained opera singer. <laughs> when did you first realize you wanted to explore the food of the African diaspora? Well, you know, um, uh, it started as a child um, without any consciousness that I was planting the seeds to really dive into the concept of food as lore and history and, and a tale, if you will. I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, already a transplant from the family's foundational birthplace, which was Charleston and Beaufort in the Gullah Islands. And when my grandfather moved the family to Spartanburg, which was maybe three and a half hours away, we took all of our customs. So none of my friends ate the food that I ate. Their food was more Piedmont, Appalachia, but it wasn't as defined as Gullah Geechee cuisine, that low country food that exists in the, in the perimeter of Charleston, Savannah, the Gullah Islands. And so I knew that we were different <laughs> just by what we ate and how we cooked and how we prepared. And my grandfather would lead us, oh, every uh, few months back to Charleston in a car caravan. And we would, you know, go there periodically, taking things to family members down there. But coming back with moss from the Gullah country, hanging from the, remember when we had antennas as kids on cars, and we put moss in the back window and there would be crates of, live crab and, and there would be oysters and all of these things 
produce that my, my family would bring back from there. And then there would be this big, not really a party, but it turns into a party because the music is playing and we're in the backyard with the newspaper on the picnic table and boiling crab in the big black pot outside in the backyard and a table picking crab. Everyone was picking crabs. And, and it would be this incredible ritualist gathering that always stayed with me. So as I developed and went through my classical training and my classical career, performing you know, throughout Europe, and I came to the point where I understood that what I wanted to do, actually what happened really is that I hit the glass ceiling, if you will, as a black male opera singer, not able to move into the next level. I had sung in the opera houses uh, throughout Europe, Paris, Rome, Germany at Frankfurt. So after singing all over Europe, coming back to America, auditioning, trying to break through, particularly at the Metropolitan Opera House, I finally decided that whatever I was going to do professionally, I had to not only own a seat at the table, I needed to own the table. And that propelled me to open my first restaurant. 18 months after that disastrous last audition, I began to develop the foundation and building out my first restaurant, Cafe Beulah, in New York City, which was 1993, I believe. Gosh, it's so mind-boggling. That wasn't so long ago. And yet I was interviewing Morris Robinson, wonderful opera singer who lives in Atlanta. We are blessed with, oh gosh, a, a whole group of internationally acclaimed singers who happened to live in Atlanta. And Morris was talking about why he did not take on the role of Porky until 2016. And he only did that because La Scala came calling for just the reason you said he wanted to make sure that he could get enough roles under his belt so that he wouldn't be typecast and Porgy wouldn't be the only opera for which he'd be considered. But just in that generation between you, there were many more roles available to him. Yes. I mean, uh, and, and he is a fine singer. I had the pleasure of hosting him at my supper club. Richard Parsons and I reopened Minton Playhouse in 2013 in New York, and one of the patrons of the Met bought out the club to have a private evening with Morris. You can imagine how special that was. And as the executive chef, I created a meal that complemented that very special evening. So bravo to him, and he was very wise to make those choices. Unfortunately, I didn't have those choices available to me because essentially it was Old Man River or it was Porgy and Bess in the United States. And I remember when the Houston Grand Opera came calling and offered me the role of Jake. Uh, I was a young grad student at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. I had this amazing teacher from Israel 
and she was extraordinarily happy for me, but also afraid for me. And she said, I will give my blessings for you to take off with the Houston Grand Opera and have this experience. But let's say it will be two to three months and you come back. And I said, yes, of course. Well, two and a half years later. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when you take uh, the boy out of the country and show him Paris and show him Frankfurt and Berlin and Rome and London, it's hard to put a stop to that. Oh, yes. And a Grammy you did not mention. Oh, gosh. You know, all of that that came with that moment you know, I was so young and so impressionable. I didn't realize that in that moment, I was also essentially writing my fate. And it was, while it was the debut, it was also the, the kind of finale, if you will, of my classical career. I mean, after Porgy, I, I did a lot of recital work, stuff like that like many uh, black male opera singers who moved to Europe so they could sing the classical music, I chose to move to Europe to study and also do recital work, but not opera, because the opera houses of Europe, particularly the ones in Germany, would exhaust the singers. I mean, they would literally come home with no voices and no opportunity to move into the possibility of large opera companies here. So it was, a, it was a difficult and demanding time. And I simply decided that I needed to change vehicles. My two great loves was food and music. So I got out of one car and, and got into the <laughs> other one. <laughs> and I hit the gas pedal. <laughs> this, this would be a great time to talk about how you structured the book with the division of chapters, and particularly in regard to chapter four. Chapter four contains recipes for fish and seafood. Is that your tribute to Porgy? Roll, you know? Yes, without question, this was my moment to. I mean, Porgy and Bess, extremely dear to me for all the right reasons. It was a low country Charleston moment, reminded me so much of my grandfather and my ancestors, my cousins and great aunts and uncles who had, you know, little farms in the low country when I was a boy. And I I remember the street vendors who peddled their goods. Uh, And so, yeah, I wanted to create an ambiance to not only celebrate that, but also raise the consciousness of the bounty of the land from that particular part of the world. The book contains a curated set of recipes, which you describe as a playlist of 
essential African-American dishes. In fact, the appendix to this book contains playlists for each chapter, which I loved, and I wondered which came first, the playlists from which you decided the recipes or music that you thought would go well with those recipes? Well, the food came first. I mean, no question or pause. I curated my kitchen offerings. And, and again, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity to make something very personal. I mean, this is my third cookbook and it was my opportunity to curate recipes that I felt were signature pieces to my Southern landscape. And so I created the recipes first and then they were the inspiration for the music that I tied to each chapter. And the playlists cover such a wonderful range of styles. For people who may be intimidated by opera singer, I must assure readers, listeners, not to worry, you will have your fair share of all genres. I love the way you compare a well-stocked pantry to a jukebox. How are they similar? <laughs> well, you know, you have to have, you know, your ingredients on hand, whether that's to make a dish or to create a musical moment. When I was a kid, my father had a nightclub called the Hilltop House, and uh, it was literally on the hill. <laughs> and on weekends, particularly Sundays after Sunday dinner on the side porch, he would gather me and my friends uh, who were willing, and most everybody was willing, and he would lock us into the nightclub with the task of, you know, you can play the jukebox, he would put it on free play so we didn't have to put any money in it, and we could act out and play in the club, but we had to clean it too. <laughs> there is no so, such thing as a free jukebox. Huh? No, <laughs> much like a free ride. So we would rush to clean that thing to, uh, to perfection so we could spend all the time on the stage with the jukebox going and the turned off mic pretending to be stars. <laughs> oh, so uh, years before karaoke, you were there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you quote the legendary chef Alice Waters of Chez Panis in Berkeley, California, regarding another culinary great, Chef Edna Lewis. What, My heart. Mm. what was the legacy of Chef Edna Lewis? Well, you know, Edna Lewis was the first Alice Waters. Edna Lewis truly branded, crafted, brought to view farm to table. She was a, a, an extraordinarily gifted woman. Aside from her cooking, she was an incredible seamstress as well, as well as my mother, actually. Uh, but Edna brought literally the farm experience into the kitchen, into the dining room in a unique way that even Alice Waters had to give her her due. She was a pioneer and she was essentially the 
face of the African-American kitchen. Extraordinary woman. I had the opportunity to meet and know her. Also my, my late uncle, Joe, who was a chef here in Harlem many, many years prior, when Edna Lewis was, was here as well. And my aunt, who was a classical pianist, would talk about this woman when I was a kid. And so to grow up and then meet her and then be inspired by her truly was a gift. It must have been extraordinary for you. In your acknowledgments, you write, tracing the steps of our ancestral people, we fused together a culinary conversation in the kitchen. Alexander Smalls, thank you for this culinary conversation. Thank you for having me, letting me sit at your table, and I've enjoyed it. Cookbook author, award-winning chef, and acclaimed opera singer, Alexander Smalls. His new book is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about a 5K race through space from Science ATL. And Scott Stewart will bring us a Thanksgiving playlist. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.